winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 58th episode in the series of podcasts for the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you well and happy wherever you may be. In this episode, I talk with Carla Lamont of Finnefort. Carla originally hails from Canada and chose to come and work in Scotland, starting off on Iona, before coming across to Finnefort, where she and her husband John run the remarkable Ninth Wave restaurant. As well as running a very successful restaurant, you may also know Carla from her recent appearances on MasterChef The Professionals. Our conversation takes in her youth in different parts of Canada, and then we go on to talk about her love of playing pool, and that's how she met John in the Keel Row in Finnefort. We then talk about how they established the restaurant, what's special and unique about the Ninth Wave, her performance poetry career, her work in radio, her appearances on MasterChef, and loads more besides. As this episode was recorded over Zoom, there are the odd occasional weird crackling noise and demonic voice in the background, so I do apologise for that. I'll be back at the end with a few more bits and bobs and some news about some archive recordings that we're going to be putting out through what we do in the winter soon. But without further ado, I'm chuffed to bits to pass you to Carla Lamont. Who are you? Wow. That, that's a question and a half. I'm a slightly bizarre chef from Canada who used to be a captain of a women's pool team. And now I then I moved to Iona to work at a restaurant in a hotel that was kind of like Faulty Towers. And now I own a wee seafood place on a wild moor in the Hebrides. Fantastic. That's a, that's a perfect title. Thank you. Canada. Whereabouts in Canada are you from originally? Where were you born in Canada? I was born in the, the prairies in Regina, Saskatchewan. And then when I was 12, I moved to the West Coast on Vancouver Island. And you couldn't really get much different. I had never seen the ocean before. I'd never seen a forest of, of pine trees before. It's miles, thousand miles of wheat field, any direction you go, basically. I am exaggerating, but that, that's Saskatchewan in a nutshell for me. And uh, then it was all granite covered in a primal forest surrounded by pretty much the same ecosystem as here. It's salmon, deer, oysters, all the good stuff. And Saskatchewan... What was the sense of community in Regina? Was it a, a large town? Was it a city? What was the kind of scale of life there? It, it is a city. It's the capital of Saskatchewan, but it's not, a, it's not a large city. I'm not sure how many people there are, but everything still feels like pioneers times there. To me, everything's rather uh, low key, wide streets, lower buildings. Um, and if you just go out of the city a bit and travel a bit in the prairies, you come to places that could have been in the 1800s. It just looks like, you know, you, your horse will roll up and you tie it to a post and go in the saloon. Actually, I did go to a, a saloon called the Last Chance Saloon and Restaurant last time I was in um, in the prairies and uh, that, that was a howl. And is the, the, the cowboy mindset, if we could call it that, is that still there, the sense of, well, you know, this is a, a land to be um, explored and, and kind of uh, to be worked with really intimately? Is, is, that, is that still there? Sure, there's still vast, vast farming communities and everybody that went there was a pioneer, basically. Um, so it's made up of very unique, people, whether it's second, first, second, or third generation. So I, I find the prairies have a really wide open sort of friendly attitude that you may not find in every other province. Um, although small towns are small towns, there are similarities everywhere you go. But um, I really enjoy the ethos. Like I was traveling with my stepdaughter from Mull all the way to Calgary, Alberta. Little did we know when we were on the plane, there was that shoe bomber for the first time in the world. 
And so when we got off to change planes at Chicago, they made us take off their shoes and they emptied all our shampoo bottles and we didn't know what the hell was going on basically. And then we got to Calgary, which was our next stop. And there was a man with a volunteer badge on wearing a red cowboy outfit. And he said, welcome to Calgary. Would you like a free hot dog? And so that just sums up the whole difference between the States and Canada. At the airport in Chicago, there was all these machine guns and military presence. And then you get to Calgary and it's free hot dogs. So that's Canada. They're always thinking about food and drink. That's the most important thing in the world there. Sounds like paradise, must admit. <laughs> what took your family to Canada originally then? And how far, how many generations into being Canadian are you? What, were, what was your family before that? Or are you native Canadian in part? Wow, that's a really, that's a really hard question to answer. I think my great grandparents were from possibly France, Normandy, and then they came up through North South Dakota, North Dakota, and Saskatchewan's right above it. So that that's that that's about all I know. We haven't been big on the family history. We're kind of a being present kind of family. So what did your family do, or what do they still do? Um, I don't have any parents left, but I have three brothers and a sister, and they're all mad about food, mm. and they all cook all the time, and they all put huge pictures of food on their Facebook. They do more food than I do. It's it's, <laughs> it's embarrassing at that times. We're a loud sort of eating kind of hedonistic family, and uh, oh, everybody's does different things. I have one brother that's an architect. I have one brother that's sort of a mad scientist and another brother that just um, retired from health information technology and a sister who was a head accountant at a hospital. And I'm, I'm none, none of those things at all. Although I did want to be a mad scientist at one time. I got the uh, white coat and the mad part. I just didn't get the scientist because I hate measuring things. So I think your your chemistry is certainly in the kitchen. There's no two ways about that. Though. There's, you know, when you look at the recipes, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, food food keeps coming up already in our conversation, which is fascinating. Can you describe for me, for you, what was an absolute treat when you were younger, when you were a child? What was the most kind of mouth watering thing you could think of? Well, my mom was a really good cook. She made um, Chinese food some Sundays, which nobody made Chinese food that wasn't Chinese back then, especially in the prairie. So that that was quite a treat. But I guess my favorite thing in the whole world were these uh, Ukrainian dumplings called pierogies. The prairies are full of uh, people from the Ukraine and people from Poland and farming communities. And it's it's pretty much like a peasant farmhand kind of food. It's a lovely dumpling, and my favorite kind are filled with mashed potatoes, gloriously melting cottage cheese, butter sauteed onions, and salt and pepper. It's quite simple. You boil them, you fry them, but then you serve them with lashings of sour cream and tons of smoked streaky bacon bits and fried onions. So there's only about 5,000 calories to each portion, which is why I'm so, so sick thin. Sounds absolutely divine. It sounds exactly like the sort of food I love. That's amazing. You, you, you've grown up in Regina and you come over to Vancouver Island. Where were you in Vancouver Island? And what was, um, if you don't mind me asking, what, what necessitated the move? What made your family move? I think a lot of people like to move to the West Coast to Canada. It's kind of like the Mull of Canada. It's uh, an aspirational place to live. Um, and my dad opened up a tire business there and, uh, they'd lived there before cause my dad, he traveled around selling Firestone tires and they lived in Victoria before and they must've liked it cause they moved back. And, um, yeah, it was uh, a great move for me. Uh, there's much, a uh, lots of arts and culture and things and the school system is, is pretty pretty great there so it, it was it was good upbringing but I'm really glad that I started off in the prairies it gave me sort of a firm grounding in um, people. Is Victoria bigger than Regina? Oh yeah right. I think there's there's lots of suburbs but it's like I think it's three quarters of a million people 
I'm not very good at numbers. It's not my specialty. It's not nearly as big as Vancouver, which is the second largest city in Canada. Yeah. But it's uh, it's definitely grown a lot since I've been here. Uh, this next month, I'll have lived in Scotland just as many years as I lived in Canada. Wow. Gosh, a bit of symmetry. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy. That's mad. Growing up in um, Victoria then, was that the upper part of your secondary school years that was there? I moved there when I was 12, so yeah. um, the, the, none of the grades correspond to these ones, so I don't know how to how to compare it, really. So you were there when you were a teenager? There's though. junior high school. Yeah. It was the last year of primary school. Then there's junior high school, and then there was high school for the last two years where I was. So, yeah, it was... Um, Totally different. I went to Catholic school in Regina and my class was a French immersion class that was like 75% French. And then wow. I moved to Victoria, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just totally different. And I didn't have to take French for five years because I was so far ahead of the game. And then I forgot it all. Oh, unfortunately, no. I'm, not, I'm not bilingual anymore, but I do have a good vocabulary in French. Yeah. What growing up then in kind of your teenage years in, in Victoria, what were the kind of highlights of that? What did you do that was fun? What were the acts of rebellion that really stick with you? And uh, how did you how did you make Victoria home or did you? I never really felt at home there. It's highly conservative. It's the most conservative part of the West Coast of Canada. It's full of lots of um, expats from Britain. It's uh, full of rich people. Not that I have anything against either one of those groups. Um, I never felt that I fit in, but I think it was more of a mindset. As soon as I got here, I felt totally different. And I felt that everything in the whole universe was possible all of a sudden, and I can't explain it. Now, that's really interesting. That is... Well, let's 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 set the context a little bit more of, of life in Canada before we come across to Scotland. You, you mentioned that you were the captain of a, a pool team uh, in in Canada. Could you explain a little bit about that, please, if that's okay? Sure. There was uh, there's um, several women's pool leagues. Um, they started off in the the Royal Canadian Legion, and it's the cheapest beer in town for one thing, which is great if you get a membership. You can you could drink jugs of beer for the price of one beer in, in a fancy bar. So it was great from that perspective when I just turned of age for drinking. But uh, it was a real sort of uh, interwoven web of different types of people. I mean, when I first joined the pool league, I was uh, 19 years old and there was lots of um, women's pool teams that had little pink bowling shirts and and lovely things like that. And they were called the miscues and things. And uh, my this lady who I met playing pool in a bar at midnight on New Year's Eve once after I finished my cooking shift, uh, she asked me to be on her pool team. And then the next year we started our own pool team. We pulled all the best people we could find, uh, went to some Indian bars, native Indian bars, and got the best native Indian players, which were something else. And we called ourselves the Deadly Eights, and I drew a shirt with a skull with cross cues and eights for the eight balls for the eyes. And we were totally different than anything that came before. And we won every single award for years and years and years. So it was lots of fun. But uh, yeah, pool meant everything to me. To lose was uh, yeah unheard of. I couldn't do it because if I lost a game, then I couldn't expect everybody else to win every single one of their games. I'm a bit different now. I think I mellowed out slightly. <laughs> mellowed out slightly. I hope so. <laughs> I just go for the uh, the restaurant awards now. Ah yes, well. I guess I've just changed um, focus. Yeah, you just changed pool table. <laughs> That's, That's it. That's it. So uh, I. I you say that you were cooking at that point as well. So where did your cooking career start off? Well, I had a um, career education teacher named Adele Clements. And uh, she had a lisp and she talked like this. And she always said, Carla, you just can't go into a place and say, I'm here, I want a job. So she made us get work experience everywhere. And somebody said that there was this wild pizza jazz club that, um, was great in this old center of Victoria and that um, if I wanted to 
try a restaurant. I should try that one because everybody was crazy and it was a lot of fun. So I tried that and I got a weekend job there. And that's how I started in restaurants. So once you're buttonholed, I don't know in that part of Canada anyway, I I couldn't I couldn't get a, a job after that in a, a women's clothing store or a bank, although I would have been absolutely hideous at either one of those jobs, to tell you the truth. Um, I guess I was where I was supposed to be, but I so I, I just happened to go for jobs in restaurants and restaurants and restaurants. And I went to college and that while working in restaurants and playing pool. And then it just sort of evolved into something. And I went for journalism and writing. Oh, brilliant. But uh, I actually don't like politics or war or violence or crime. So journalism is basically that. Um, so I was more into the human interest angles and the stories. And I used to interview people on the radio, all these strange people that nobody else wanted on the radio shows. Yeah. I used to do that for a living a bit. Fantastic. It was a volunteer thing. But Are there any characters from that time that you think uh, that, that stay with you? Any kind of stories from those people that you think are worth saying? Oh, yeah. Funnily enough, my old algebra teacher, which I had to take algebra six times because I just didn't get it. Um, Mr. Harris, he was great. He had this ducktail swooped brill cream cardu. I just loved him. I got to know him really well because I was in his class like every year. And then after I graduated, I had to go back and go <laughs> take his class again. And I interviewed him because he was a um, one an expert on beekeeping. Oh, wow. And so I interviewed him and uh, he used to bring me free honey at one of the restaurants I worked at. And he used to say, you know, Carla, if you live to be 110 it'll because you have a teaspoon of honey a day let me tell you that's the way to go and he talked like that so it was really quite strange but it made for um quite a riveting radio program yes indeed yeah i now expect you to do the rest of the interview in that accent please (laughs) yeah i hated the news because i just wasn't into all the horrible things but i used to love this thing called the afternoon file that came across the telex thing and it was all the weird people and all the weird things they've done, like a um, man ran over his wife 17 times in the driveway because he thought she was possessed by Mickey Mouse and stuff. I used to read those out because I thought, this is news. Now, this is great. I love this. And a pig had escaped that had rescued a kid and it was a famous pig. And they were looking for it for weeks. And the story went on and they finally found him like two states over in Texas at a drive-in movie. I mean, I just, you can't make up this stuff. And that's the stuff you never hear on the news, and that's the stuff I want to hear. So, <laughs> at what point? Did you choose to come this direction of travel across across Canada to the east and go to the Isle of Mull and Iona? Why did you come this way? Well, it was just serendipity. I used to live, uh, rent a place in a house, like a little suite in a house uh, from a lady who was a comedian and traveled the world pretending she was the Queen of England. <laughs> It was called Laughs with Liz, and she was quite um, alternative, and she was also a painter. And she knew this guy that had worked on Iona, and she knew I was looking for a change of job and that I wasn't enjoying the city. So she said, Alex said that there's a job going at this restaurant on the island called Iona, and I had to get my mom. There was no computers back then. I had to phone my mom and ask her to look it up in an atlas. Oh, wow. Remember those? Yes. They're, they're like books with pictures of the world. I think so. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so, and my mom was laughing at me. She says, it's the size of a pea, she says. And so I, I uh, applied for this job, and the lady just kept saying, well, everyone in the restaurant and in the kitchen is a vegetarian are you a vegetarian? And I kept saying, no. She said, are you sure you're not a vegetarian? I said, I'm sure. She said, really? And I said, I don't even know any vegetarians. Does that make you feel better? And she said, okay, well, uh, can you be here by Easter? And that was it. That was the job interview. Wow. So I was, yeah, relegated to the back room with my red cutting board, my red butcher knife and, and a hunk of meat. 
uh, some description for the first year. And uh, yeah, and I just loved it. It was a cross between Faulty Towers and Animal House from National Lampoon. Um, yeah, it was wacko and I loved it. And I don't think you could recreate that if you tried. Which hotel was it? Was it the St. Columba? Or? No, it was the Argyle, but both of them were pretty crazy behind the scenes. But Argyle Hotel had a slight lead on craziness, I think. So settling into Iona, what was it about the community and the life there that made you go, ah, this is something here, there's something? What was it about that? Was it the craziness? Was it the, the fun? What, what was it? Oh, on many levels. I just loved how everybody said hi to you when you were walking down the street. In Victoria, the, the dumb thing is to look down and away mm -hmm. if you're meeting somebody coming the opposite direction on the sidewalk. And I always felt awful doing that. And the few times I tried to smile at people, they obviously thought I'd escaped from somewhere <laughs> so I didn't try that very often but on Iona everybody just said hi to you and would talk to you and even if they didn't know you they would give you the benefit of the doubt that you were a great person and it was also the multicultural bohemian thing I'd never been involved in that and everybody at the hotel was from somewhere else and they were just uh another level of crazy, all different kinds, um, quite a few academics, quite a few people that they just worked for the summer and then they traveled the world for the rest of the year. It was just an eye opener that you could work for half the year yeah. and then do whatever you wanted. And I've done that ever since my first season on Iona because what a lifestyle. Okay. I'm not rich. I don't have a Porsche, but I don't, I don't really give a shit. I'm having the time of my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's brilliantly said. I've not really heard it said like that before. So thank you. That's absolutely superb. Then Iona to Finnefort, what was the point when you came across here? When did you meet John or your Johnny? When did you meet? Well, I came across because they don't have a pool table on Iona. So on my day off, I went all the way on the ferry and I said, where's the nearest pool table? So I went to the Keelrow pub. And then I went in the pool room and there wasn't anybody playing pool. So I asked um, the the owner, Andrew, then Andrew McDonald, whether there was anybody to play pool with. And he said, well, you'd have to come on a Saturday and then you'd have to ask for John or Peter. They play pool. And so I said, oh, OK, then that's fine. And I had some drinks and it was my birthday. So um Somebody bought me a tequila for my birthday that didn't even know me before. And I had a great time. And so I came back on Saturday and then there's this guy at the next table kind of discussing things with a friend and they were arguing about uh, who wrote a book and they were both wrong. Turned And I said, actually, it was Robert Louis Stevenson. I remember saying that. And then I saw Johnny for the first time and he was covered in axle grease and he was just two bright blue eyes sort of beaming along on the other side of his pint beer. And he said, oh, you must be the, the Canadian pool nut that everybody has been talking about. And I said, must I? And he said, well, judging by your accent, you must be. Do you want a game of pool? And then um, he invited me for lobster dinner the next week. And that's pretty much it. That did it for me. Goodness me. Well, that's quite something. Yeah. And how is he at pool? Is he any good? Not nearly as good as me. Fantastic. I'm going to let that stand. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. At what point did cooking for your own restaurant, cooking for yourself, start? Well, Johnny had this great idea. This was just pretty much a, um, a hovel, the building we're in. It was kind of like had a little tiny section that had... Um, plywood and a concrete floor in the center and it had a peat fire and no um a pea pail it had no toilet you had to use Derek the neighbor's toilet outside and it was it was rustic I'd never even heard of a place without a toilet in in like that wasn't in the third world mm -hmm. I was quite shocked and I kept going on about well we have to get this done up and that so and we looked at moving to a place but then we just thought we like it here so why not just do this place up and then Johnny had this great plan of the only really way it would be feasible is if you had half of it up for a business. Yeah. And he was working at the Keel Row as a waiter. And uh, he loves people. He loves hosting, playing mind host and flying people with beverages and things. So it was a great sort of partnership. And then he thought, why don't we just uh, open a restaurant? I, I'll supply all the seafood that you should go straight to Spain 
in those days. And uh, yeah, and we'll go from there. And so it took us seven years from the time we got the idea. I remember saying, okay, well, we should be able to do that in six months. And he says, oh, I think that's a bit Mm. crazy. I think it's going to take two years. And I said, you're such a pessimist. And uh, it took it took seven seven years, but we did it. So, how long were you in the house before it was refurbished? Then I was fifteen years without any central heating. I did put a bathroom with a toilet on the outside uh, in a lean-to quite soon, but uh, yeah, fifteen years without any sort of central heating and no kitchen. My kitchen was in my living room and uh, the living room was a concrete floor and the bedroom used to have ice on the inside of the window and on the duvet cover. It was, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't miss those days. I love my underfloor heating and my little bit of luxury that I'm entitled to. (laughs) Very, very well well worth it. Yeah, definitely. No two ways about it. That's amazing. So when did the ninth wave open? What, what, What year was that? 2009 at the height of the recession of course. and people would say we would never make it because we don't need a fine dining restaurant out in the middle of nowhere that's not even on the main road. I'm a firm believer that if you're really good at what you do and you love what you do, you can do anything anywhere and people will come. Maybe not right at the beginning, but uh, yeah. yeah. Can you describe for me then the first night? What was your first night of service like in your own restaurant? Ah, well, we had sort of a, an experimental night that was all locals that booked out so we could see how it ran. And um, it was filled with all people from Finneford and, and the environs. It went, it went really, really wonderful. We had lots of good help and everybody was so supportive because they'd never seen anything like it um, in Finneford or otherwise. It's quite a, quite a unique restaurant. It's got all of my favorite things in it. And um, the John Noddings, who uh, owns an award-winning bed and breakfast in the village here, he got up and made a speech and he was so emotional about the restaurant that he got tearful and so did everybody else. And it was just, it was a great night. That was, that was our first night and we were uh, full to capacity. We did uh, 18 covers and uh, we've never looked back really. That's beautiful. Can you then describe for me, because I, 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 I've grown up um, as a, a fan of cooking and a fan of kitchen culture. Um, and although I've never worked in a kitchen, I've you know read plenty of books about it. And I love the work of Anthony Bourdain and things like that. I'm really fascinated by the psychology of the kitchen. Can you describe for me how your kitchen works when it's working at its best? What's the feeling like? What's the flow like? What's the day like? It's not really like any other kitchen I've worked in before because there's only two people working in there, me and my my assist, assistant, my sous chef, whatever you like to call them, partner for the evening. Uh, we work all day, get a little break in the afternoon and then work all night together. Um, so you got to really like the person, but uh, I like to have fun. So I'd rather start three hours early and, and have time to enjoy and have fun then rush rush through things but uh, you have to work fast for me you, you can't be a slacker but there's if you sort of give enough time for creativity your job could be an absolute joy um, we started I started about six or seven in the morning and then I go pick my herbs and things like that and I, I do the menu for the day it changes all the time depending on what's coming in from the garden and that and uh we prep almost everything fresh. We don't make ice cream every single day, say, but we make everything from our handmade chocolates to the ice cream. The only thing I pretty much don't make is like we don't have a dairy farm. We don't make her, our own cheese. And we've got the award-winning Isle of Mull cheese anyway. Mm. So then we have a little break in the afternoon, which usually involves like gardening or just lying on the sun lounger on the patio. Um, sometimes I have to go to the abattoir to pick up meat or whatever, which is uh, quite a full afternoon. And then we start again in the evening, do the setup, and uh, we uh, seat people at 7, 7.15, and 7.30, and they get the table for the whole evening. And they can do up four to six courses and uh, have time to talk to Johnny. He was the, the head waiter and the wine steward 
every single year that we were open, but he's now retired. He, he'll be 70 this year, and he's a full-time fisherman, a full-time crofter, and a full-time organic gardener. So I let him let go of one of those jobs uh, with, with regret because the customers love him. He's, he's a pretty sort of curmudgeonly person in one way, but he also just loves to share the bounty of uh, mull with everybody. So it was a good combination. So this year will be a slightly different. Indeed. Who have you got stepping in this year? We've got a lovely couple from Art Gower um, coming into, he's working in the kitchen with me. His name is George Wimpenny. I just love his name. He sounds like a steampunk sort of uh, guy with a with a top hat. Um, her name's uh, Katrina and she's going to head up the restaurant. And then we have uh, a local girl called uh, Harry Burney, who's going to be uh, waitressing and hostessing on the floor. And uh, that's it. That That's the total entire of a, a full staff thing. And that that's assuming that we're going to be able to open. Um, I won't use the word normally. Yeah. Uh, as, as usual, yeah. what, what the future, future holds nobody knows but i'm a firm believer in positive thinking so i'm just trying to picture the outcome that i would like to have happen yeah. and uh not not like an ostrich i'm not delusional and i'm not pretending that covid exists but i'm doing all i can to make things work in my direction can you describe for the listener some of the meals and some of the plates that you're happiest with some of the ones that have inspired you most and what it is about those fresh herbs, that fresh seafood, that wonderful um, meat from the abattoir. Can you paint a picture with words about your cooking, if that's all right? Sure. Uh, my cooking has a lot of influence because uh, Vancouver Island's right across the uh, water from Japan and China. Uh, half the population is Asian. Um, so there's a, a little Chinatown there. It's a huge melting pot. You can go shop for Chinese herbs and... Uh, you know, smoked fish and all sorts normally find. And my sort of upbringing was full of eating those kinds of food. Dim sum is still one of my favorite things to go to, a little smorgasbord with trays of heavenly delights on them, just rolling past your table every five minutes. So um, I like to bring that into it because I love ethnic food. I love Asian food. And every winter, Johnny and I usually go traveling and we bring back some influences from a different country, um, Sri Lanka, Mexico, you know, wherever we go. Um, but still one of my favorite things to cook, and I, I made it on MasterChef the Professional because it's my signature dish. If I had to pick one, which is really difficult, is a warm crab and Isle of Mull cheese cheesecake. So it's got uh, some smokiness in it. It's got some smoked cheese, some some normal Isle cheddar. It's got fresh crab meat. It's got cream cheese. It's got fresh dill from the garden. It's hedonism on a plate. Oh, it is so good that you just want to dive face first into your plate. Um, and it's a simple thing, but... Um, Simple things done well, not burnt like I did on the Master Chef Professional. <laughs> <laughs> I never, never used an induction hob before. Never used. There was a lot of um, firsts on that thing, um, but that's got to be still one of my favorite dishes. But it's the the blending of the freshest seafood. It comes in a bucket. An hour before I start my evening chef, Johnny brings in the seafood, and he catches sea urchins and octopus and all sorts in his his creels as well. And we try to use it all. And it's the, it's the juxtaposition between fresh seafood. And I like to leave like a whole crab claw. So you do get to know what the, the actual honest ingredient tastes like. But then I do techniques with things, perhaps not foams and gastro, you know, scientific cooking. But um it's enough where it's something that you would never make at home. So I like to have some of the whole crab claw and the divine moose whipped cheesecake to go along with it. And all my dishes have that juxtaposition, a whole langoustine. And then there's um, langoustine, lemon pepper, uh, scotch eggs around little tiny um, uh, pigeon eggs or quail eggs. Um, so 
there's always a mixture and usually there's some kind of ethnic influence, whether it be from South America or Korea, uh, which I'm discovering, or this year, it's going to be Madagascar, just because I like the name of it. So I've been researching that. My mouth is watering. That just sounds amazing, particularly the Scotch egg. I mean, oh my goodness, that sounds extraordinary. Yeah. You mentioned um, steampunk there as well. Now that's uh, something that that I, I I think that I first came across you through poetry stuff and your steampunk steampunk work. Can you describe to us your connection to the steampunk um, uh, federation of uh, the Ross Mall? Is it symp- symposium or federation of the? Ro- well, a symposium is just a sort of a that that's what we call our meetings, right, or sometimes they're huge parties where we each. Uh, build some sort of scientific contraption and and drink lots of um, dubious cocktails in test tubes and things. Um, I just got into it through my friend Janet, Dr. Janet Schofield, who's uh, sort of a legend in her own right. Um, And it involves dressing in Victoriana, but it could have a sci-fi edge. It, It has many faces. And basically, I've always loved dressing up. So It's an excuse for a lot of us to get together, dress up, be pseudo-intellectual. Some some people are are really scientists and they do build uh, wonderful contraptions and they give lectures and things and and we have afternoon tea. And if I could afford it, I would rent a balloon and have steampunk balloon rides over Finnefort and Iona, but I haven't quite reached the dizzying heights of that yet. Amazing. That's gorgeous. And... uh writing as well so obviously you've you've got your your book here as well but you've also um self-published as well can you say a little bit about your writing where where did your writing career start and what what interests you in writing i've always written when i was a teenager and i worked in uh restaurants in the in the uh little kitchens i worked in often there was like dull moments where there weren't any orders so I used to take the um the readout paper they used to get orders on and I used to write little stories on the back of the the computer printout paper and uh that's how it started basically but I did take a creative writing sort of course in in school and things like that but I just went on and on and then at the Argyle Hotel we we started this thing called the Scribe Tribe and it was basically four people in somebody's tiny, tiny staff room. And we took turns doing hosting it. And um, we wrote poetry. And then um, my friend Judith Jarden, who was, was in there, we decided to take it on the road. And we we went to Tobamori with it. We went to some some museums and things like that. Yeah. And uh, and we went to Benesson and we did the hall on Iona and we used to do that for quite a few years doing our poetry shows. It was sort of a cross between maybe um, Saturday Night Live and the poetry reading. Wow, that's lovely. And how were they received? What was that like? Well, people seemed to be really, really um, surprised and delighted because it wasn't um, your sort of attention span is very short when listening to poetry. A minute is actually a really oh, long yeah, time definitely. for one person to read one poem. So we interspersed it with music and we had props and we had very weird scenarios where we'd write a poem in two parts and then we'd sit down at this fake Italian restaurant and act out the poem kind of thing. So I don't think they knew what hit them. I don't think uh, I don't think Mull had ever seen anything like it or or Iona way back then. I'm talking twenty plus years here. At what point did you decide to submit an application to MasterChef the Professionals, or were you suggested for it? They, they kept asking me to apply for it over a number of years. And unfortunately, I'm the only chef in a small restaurant. So I would actually have to close the restaurant to go yeah. and do that because it, it's always filmed in the summer. And so I thought, oh, my God, OK, the restaurant's going to be closed here. This is a great opportunity. I'm going to go for this. And I went for it and I beat out, I don't know, at least. 1200 people and wow. I got got on there um, that you go through quite a rigorous system of interviewing and things like that but uh, 
yeah, so that that's how I, I got the opportunity and I just went for it. What was the process like how, the, from the application through to the, the, the last? Because you were down to the, the finals, is that right? No, no, no. I was the quarterfinals Sorry. and I was quite glad to leave when I did because it really wasn't my right. forte. The TV part, yeah, I could do that day and night. Talking to people could do that day and night. Somehow, the combination of everything, and when they said go, my mind went, and I, I was only cooking on automatic pilot. I had nothing else to work with, and it was the most absolute terrifying thing I've ever done in my life, and I can read poetry in front of 500 people that I've memorized and stuff, so it's not like I'm not used to doing things in front of people, but I can't, I can't tell you what it was. Well, and also, it was after four months of being in my living room and then being transported to downtown London, which I don't do on a good day. No. Um, so, yeah, so it was culture shock. Um, everything rolled into one. And if you have any insecurities, which I thought I was finished with all those stupid things, you know, um, they just came rolling back at me. <laughs> and I was in a hotel room kind of... Um, yeah, I was pining for Mel, to put it mildly. Yeah. And so I'm glad that I did it. But they were right to send me home when, when they did. I was really quite surprised that I got through the first round because it felt like I was always 10 minutes behind. And you know how you see people, they're reading their lists of things they have to do that they've meticulously planned? Well, I had such a list, but I had no time to read one word to check if I had anything right. done. Okay, That's how crazy it was. And I, I don't know, everybody says it's the hardest thing they've done, but maybe other people, I'm fast too. I'm really fast, but I don't know whether it's because I'm a menopausal woman. I'm probably the oldest contestant they ever had on MasterChef, the professional, to tell you the truth, because there aren't many people in their 50s and there certainly aren't many women in their 50s. Mm. So maybe it was the the the, the lack of um, barium in my brain cells or something, but um, I wasn't functioning like I used to be able to as an air traffic controller that could do a million things at once. But saying that, I don't know what, uh, I didn't know then what I know now, so I couldn't have done as well on that level. So it was a really interesting sort of social exper experiment on many levels. Your food is so locally sourced and very much inspired by your surroundings. So how, when you're doing a programme in the heart of London, did they source the food for you? Or did you did you come down with a crab in a, in a bag? <laughs> Not a crab, but I brought my Szechuan pepper plants out of the garden. I dug up I my, um, pepper. Gosh. Oh. my sweet woodruff. I dug up all this stuff from the garden and transported it in a trolley on top of my luggage. And I had all my dried seaweed that Johnny picked and I dried. So yeah, there was mull. There was a lot of mull in there. What is the experience? Because this is the thing, you know, even from watching like Ready Steady Cook when I was a kid and you'd see Ainsley Harriet trying the food, hmm, that's absolutely terrible and, and all that sort of stuff. How, what is that experience of having a couple of guys who may not like at all to have them going, hey, mm-hmm? Well, I was um, just so pleasantly surprised. Not that I thought they would be awful, but they were, the judges were the kindest people ever. Wow. They want you to succeed. They want you to do the best you can. Um, they, sure, they have to put pressure on you to finish on times, but it's because they want you to succeed. And I have nothing but ab admiration for them. And I just thought they were so kind to me in all their critiques, because especially the, uh, <laughs> the restaurant critics, boy, I didn't find out what they thought of my food till I watched it on TV with the rest of the country. Wow. So I had to wait months and months and months to know what it was like. And in my head, I had thrown it from a great height and it looked like something I wouldn't serve even my worst enemy. So I was, I felt nauseous watching the program. I didn't even know if I could watch it to tell you the truth. I felt so sick. Um, but they were so kind to me. They said, oh, yeah, you burnt the cheesecake. But my God, isn't this wonderful? And I'm like, you could have ripped me apart. And they did rip people apart. But I don't know. The universe must have been on my side because they were nice to me. <laughs> <laughs>
what do you feel the role that your restaurant serves within the community is? And what does the community mean to you? Well, those are kind of two different answers, I think. I never really saw myself. I mean, I'm obviously a member of the community and I love living on Mall, but I'm not much of a, a charitable worker. I don't host teas for cancer and I don't do this. I participate in them when other people do them. But perhaps it's opened my eyes a bit to um, the other things that I could do. Like perhaps in the winter I could, if there's any like um, high school students from Tobermory or somewhere that like to learn something in the kitchen or whatever, maybe I could, um, you know, uh, reach a wider sort of, audience and maybe people that don't get the chance to learn um cooking skills on mo mm -hmm. you know um so i have sort of thought a bit more about that i i am very much a member of of the community but um what my role plays i guess this is a special place where people can come and they do from tobamori even for a celebratory meal, whether they have people visiting or whether it's their anniversary or some people have come up from, you know, south of England, Georgia, Australia, and they've come into Scotland anyway, but they come to Mull to come to the restaurant, which is always really shocked me. So it's really nice to be a destination place, but um, for tourists and visitors, but I really think it's important to have somewhere special for the locals to go and and in years past I've done sort of brunches at the ends of the season when we could we could do uh, other things and bakery days and um, bread making days and things like that so um, I'm not sure I think the community would have to tell you what my role in the community is but I enjoy being a part of it. Fantastic is there anything else you want to say before we wind up? Well, I guess it's just sort of to, to summarize the MasterChef thing that I just wanted to, everybody says it, that they want to represent their island and do them proud in that. But I just really, really, a lot of people at the whole world round know how great Mull is, but I figure sort of on the culinary map, things perhaps it's not illustrated as well as the wildlife and, and, and different things. And um I just wanted to do my best. I, I had two goals. I, I didn't want to cry and, and I didn't want to run away. So I managed both of those things. Thank you so much, Carla. It was just lovely to finally get a chance to catch up and have a natter. I hope to see you soon and I wish you and the team all the very best for the new season when it starts. Now, if you're a regular listener and have been waiting for a new episode of What We Do in the Winter, I'm really sorry it's taken me so long to get this episode out. Work has just exploded over the last few months and I can barely grab a moment to myself. When I'm not working, I tend to be sitting in a darkened hollow somewhere, dribbling. There is lots more what we do in the winter to come so don't worry there are literally hunters and hunters of folk to talk to so i hope to be back with you soon with more one of the jobs i've been working on over the last months is tales for the east a podcast about the lives of the people of deniston site hill and hag hill in the east end of glasgow it's an artist in residence post with glasgow life and it's been a great pleasure to do it along with my mate tim marozzo who's going to be doing photography of the participants once um covid things kind of start to lift it's been such fun to do and I think I'll probably have it running until the sort of middle of July I'm hopeful that I'll get about 20 episodes or so out so if you like these kind of what we do in the winter style conversations there's a chance you might really enjoy Tales for the East it's quite a similar approach the depths of lives that people have experienced around us are so interesting I mean everyone has a story to tell another forthcoming podcast is Owning Our Future from Southwest Mull Iona Development SWAMID and Community Land Scotland this is a limited run series and it's a podcast series where I talk to people of the Ross of Mull and Iona about the pandemic and how SMID operated and what their role in this unprecedented time was and is. I'm really looking forward to putting this out with you. It's something different. It's quite, yeah, it's quite something different. Now, 
I'm also delighted to say that What We Do in the Winter, Mull Museum and Mull Historical Society have teamed up to release the, the digitised audio recordings of Donald Langamill, the father of Catherine Evans, from episode 38 of this podcast. I just need to get clearance from all the families of the people that spoke, as none of the participants are with us anymore. So I'm working on this and I hope to have them out fairly soon. There's some absolutely incredible tales in there. One particular, <laughs> one particular highlight... One particular highlight is the story of a man who had a long way to go home after a wedding, so the hosts gave him a piece away with him. And when he opened it up, it was a wedge of mutton between two slices of wedding cake. I don't know if there was icing involved or not, but oh man. (laughs) So there's loads of tales in this archive. I'll host these recordings on the What We Do in the Winter SoundCloud page, but I won't put them out in the main feed. They'll be accessible through their own playlist. I'll maybe do one edited highlights episode uh, on the main feed as well to give you a flavour of it because the stories are are really something. Now, if you wanted to support the podcast, please feel free to click on the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com but don't worry if you can or you don't want to. I'd much, much rather that you listened and went havering around with us rather than not. And on that note, thank you so much to all the monthly subscribers. Needless to say, I really, really appreciate it. If you're a monthly supporter and you find yourself in different circumstances and not able to support the podcast anymore, don't worry at all. I totally understand. If it was possible to ask you, the listener, to leave a star review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be really, really grateful. The more stars and more reviews it has, the more kind of visible it is to the world and means these stories get out there and are shared around the place. As ever, thank you so much to all of you that reach out and say hello. It always makes my day to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I hope life has been kind to you wherever you are, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Take care wherever you may be. Morantang! Shinakate! This episode is lovingly dedicated to the memory of Ian McKinnon, who spoke to me for episode 55 at Christmas Just Past. I'm sorry to say that Ian passed away last weekend. He was a truly wonderful man, kind, Fun and always with a twinkle in his eye. My sincerest condolences to Ishbel, Rhoda, Kirsty and Ross, and the rest of the family. Vami ho cholistje a vi kolarivsha irsna vanish. Bit la erich drela vaun, a mesk churlach is harshjen is chore, be ian kor gayandring yon. Morin tang irsna hularut, dun ye